Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I have spent the last 12 years trying to find the perfect model of musculoskeletal healthcare. And I think I found it. I think it's combining chiropractic care with excellent rehab skills and then transitioning those patients into an exercise program at a gym where there's great communication between you and the people running the gym. We call that the clinic gym hybrid model. And over the last two years, we've really been trying to perfect it with the goal of having 100 clinic gym hybrid facilities opening up here in the U.S. I'm Dr. Josh Satterley, and welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I'm here with the the professor of language for coaching, <laughs> uh, Nick Winkleman. Nick, how's it going, buddy? Yeah, it's going great, my man. Honored Good. to be on. Great. I'm glad to have you. Nick just released an amazing uh, book. It is, it is equal parts packed with amazing information and uh you definitely need to give a blue ribbon to whoever did the graphic design because this thing is the most incredible textbook I've ever seen. <laughs> well, thank you. It was it was a team it was a team effort, but I will uh, I will extend it to the team for sure. Yeah, well, let, identify that person if we're ever together, and I will buy them a beer because the pictures uh, the pictures really set the stage for it. So it's absolutely incredible. And Nick, you uh, you just published this book. I mean, we're talking weeks ago, right? And yep. uh, I'm lucky enough to have you on here. Um, but this is really the culmination of years. You're currently the, uh, the head of performance for uh, Irish rugby. You're an expat American living in Dublin, um, doing your best to stimulate the economy through the consumption <laughs> of Guinness, I'm sure. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but you, you've been a coach for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah. But gosh, I think over, over 15 years now, but my very first job, I think as a 15-year-old, was, you know, sitting in a gym, helping people lift weights and put weights away. So, I mean, I've been a gym junkie since as long as I can remember. Nice. And where did you grow up, buddy? So I grew up just outside of, of Portland, Oregon, and ended up going to school in Corvallis at Oregon State University before moving to Phoenix, Arizona uh, in my early 20s. Yeah. Same place, really. I mean, Corvallis, Oregon, Phoenix, the weather, the, the geography, yeah, totally, totally, almost identical. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, I always tell people that I thought growing up in Oregon would have prepared me for the weather here in Dublin. Uh, but unfortunately, when you live in Phoenix, Arizona for 10 years, that erases all memory of it. And there, therefore, the, the weather here has probably been the biggest challenge. But when you have a sunny day, man, do you appreciate living here because it is a gorgeous country. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, I lived up in Montana for five years. And, you know, one thing that I that happens in only cold, wet weather uh, doesn't seem to happen in SoCal as much. There are those early spring days where it's like 55 degrees and, and there are girls literally laying out in like, you know, bikini tops, like trying to get some tan. And it's like when you're programmed for 30, you know, 20 and 30 degree weather, that 55. And yeah. if it's clear and sunny with no wind, it's like, man, I got to shed layers. And uh, well, you're, yeah, for sure. Right. In Phoenix, in Phoenix, if it's 70 degrees, you're putting on a sweatshirt and jeans. Right, you got your hoodie on, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here, yeah. if it's 70 degrees, I mean, you're wearing only what you have to because it feels absolutely scorching. Yeah, it's, it was a funny experience in college. You know, you're, you're sitting there and late in spring semester, it starts warming up a little bit and some girl who will walk in with, you know, who's removed multiple layers and you're like, did you just sign up for this class? Because I've never seen you before. <laughs> like, yeah. I sat next to you for seven, the seven weeks of the semester. 
No, the girl sits next to me is always wearing a parka and has her, you know, has a beanie on. It's like, yeah. Anyways, well, let's talk language because, uh, I mean, I was blown away by this book, but it starts out with a fantastic story. Uh, there you are working for, if anybody here knows Mark Verstegen, uh, the guy's jaw can, can cut glass. Uh, he, what is, he pisses excellence and he farts leadership, right? Like <laughs> That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Yeah. That's been my experience. So there you are working as a relatively, I don't know how to say it. You're still a young coach, but it, you're, you've also entered like the, the, the most advanced coaching ecosystem maybe in the world at the time. And so you're working for Exos or Athletes Performance and yeah. uh, all that you're expected to do is you and your buddy are just going to run the NFL Combine Prep program, yep. right? That's it. Yep. That's it. Yeah. So how did, how did that go? I mean, when did, when did you get the, uh, did you get butterflies in your stomach when it fell on your shoulders? How many years had you been coaching? Take us through the journey from yeah. scrub walking in the door to your head of NFL prep. Yeah. You know, I, it, it probably goes back just a touch before starting at Exos, you know, I interned there, it was still called athletes performance and in Tempe, Arizona at the time in 2006. So I always tell people I spent three years in college preparing just to intern for Mark Verstegen, you know, luckily enough, my mentor in college had known Mark when Mark was still an IPI at the Boletary Institute in Bradenton, Florida. And my mentor was working for the Baltimore Orioles at the time, worked there for 14 years. So they knew each other. And inevitably, Mark went on to start AP in Arizona. And my mentor ended up finding a small little corner in the rec center at Oregon State University. So definitely a diamond in the rough. And I'm a sophomore. I meet this guy. He's my mentor. And he sees that I'm for real about wanting to become a great coach. And he pulls out this trifold. And it's so funny. You talk about a, a jaw that can cut glass and a hairline that can cut steel, I'd say. Yeah. And here is this trifold of Mark Verstegen says athlete's performance. And he you know, puts it on the ground, hits it with his finger and says, listen, this guy is the best at what he does in the world. Athlete's performance is a game changer. You want to be the best. That's the person you need to train under. And so this, I'm a sophomore, just beginning my sophomore year. I said, what, okay. What year is this, just for reference? Oh, gosh. We are, this would have been 2002, 2003. Okay. Cool. And so I'm in there basically getting a, a degree alongside my exercise sports science degree. I'm doing internships in pro baseball, college baseball, personal training, return to train, working with him as a therapist, so on and so forth. So I'm putting in all this time. And then I get there in 2006. And inevitably, you know, as an intern, I go through this six-month process unpaid. I have no guarantee of anything on the back end of it. And a month before everything's uh, about to end, I get pulled into a room with uh, Mark Verstegen at the head of the table, all of our strength conditioning coaches, my mentors, the people that I was working with, sitting on the side. And he says, are you doing all your responsibilities? I said, yes, sir. Um, are you ready to commit to continue to excellence? I said, yes, sir. He's like, well, if you continue to, to commit to excellence as you have, the job is yours. Welcome. You are now a coach at Athletes Performance. And like literally, the, it, it, it was dramatic. And I teared up because I had been working for that thing for three years, and there it was. So when I got the gig offered and started as a full-time coach in 2007, the number one thing I knew I wanted to do from the second I, I, I put a foot on the property 
was, was run the NFL Combine Development Program. And as you rightly note, there was two arms of it. There's the S&C side, the person that manages the gym, the strength and the power, so to speak, but then the coach out on the field who's doing everything and is basically a glorified track coach, movement skill coach for the entire time. And it's an, an eight-week process over January and February in the lead up to uh, end of February when the combine takes place in Indianapolis. And so for two years, two and a half years, I, well, I didn't even really watch it, to be honest with you, because I was running all the recovery. I was doing the foam roll sections. I was out timing all the cold plunge, but I was putting my dues in, Josh, because that's what you got to do. And I was soaking up learning, having as many conversations as I could. And inevitably, the, the movement skill position opened up in 2009, and I was the next one in line, had paid my dues. I was told not to screw it up and said, give it a go. And so when I took that program over, I think what's important to the story is for those that are unfamiliar with Exos, these facilities suffer for nothing. They are massive. They have every piece of equipment you could ever, ever want, every piece of technology. We're overstaffed, which is great for the athlete experience. There's you, physical you, therapists, massage you therapists, have experts. they're all there. You have experts in every category and subcategory of anything having to do with sports performance, right? Yeah, like not, absolutely. not just absolutely. Uh, strength and conditioning, but we have a, uh, you know, top five ranked Olympic weightlifting coach who just focused on the <laughs> Oli lifts, doesn't worry about the pull-ups. We have a specialist for pull-ups actually. Yeah, exactly. Let's continue to put that one forward hundred percent. So we've got really good coaches and it's unbelievable uh, that we have all this surrounding these, these players. And so the program itself had also been handed down. And it had been designed by the likes of Daryl Eto and Luke Richardson and Joe Gomes. And if you don't know these names, for me, these are SNC elite. They're SNC royalty. All of them have since gone on to work in professional uh, football as well as professional basketball. One of them, Luke Richardson, has won you know a, a championship when he was in Denver. You know, so it's uh, it's an unbelievable pedigree of coach. This is uh... and they hand. This is at the end of the Avengers movie where, you know, Captain America's there and then Iron Man pulls up next to him, the Hulk's in the back, Black Widow, exactly. Hawkeye, like, and all the other characters that, like, some people don't really know unless you're a true fan, but they're there in the picture. Well, exactly. And I'm the young Spider-Man, right, of the modern <laughs> generation of movies trying to, trying not to screw it up. Mr. Right? Stark. I'm, I'm seen, <laughs> exactly. Mr. Stark. I'm seen to have a little bit of talent, you know, but very much so I'm still naive. So, I take this program over, which I knew inside and out, and you know I'm, I'm coaching it with surgical precision. I'm managing time with military precision. I's are dotted, T's are crossed, so on and so forth. And I think had anyone come and watched me coach those, those first eight weeks in 2009, they wouldn't have said, boo, They're like, man, this guy's on time. The program's on point. He's leading. You know, his words, his cues are on point. Fantastic job. He's an elite coach working at an elite center with elite athletes. And, but, and can I just make one yeah. comment here for the listener? This is the, the NFL combine prep is the flagship program for AP, right? This is the reason it has such a beautiful uh, facility and, and any staff at once, right? This is the thing it's known for almost more than anything else. Like uh, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the bedrock of the organization, right? For sure. It is the bedrock. So this is you uh, making, you know, you're at five guys and you're in charge of burger development. Like, yes, we also have fries and other things, but I'm telling you these burgers <laughs> better be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so 
And to boot, we have 30 of the top players who are already been tapped on the shoulder to be in the first three rounds. We have all of their agents who are used to my predecessor, who was phenomenal at what he did. And so there's the pressure from the player, uh, the player's parent, the agent, and the organization. And so you can just imagine going through this, as you noted earlier, I'm simply trying to not screw it up. And you know, so far, so good. But I have a moment. I had this, this critical moment, and it happened on a Monday morning, late January, uh, within this process. And we're doing a little bit of speed prep before an acceleration session. And I just, for whatever reason, had this realization, almost like this out-of-body realization, where I could step to the side of me, almost in a bird's eye view, and watch the way I was coaching. And that's just the best way I can describe it to people. And what I saw was a guy who, you know, what he was saying sounded good. It was technically appropriate. It was in a motivational tone. It was with good posture and good projection. But I'm like, this guy is coaching before, during, after every single repetition. It's like a song on a loop. Cues are coming fast and furious. But in that same bird's eye view, I'm looking at the actual athletes and I'm asking the question, man, how can these guys possibly be processing all this information? And actually, as I'm watching, I'm not seeing any of these words echoing in any of their bodies. So this guy's talking like a one-way street, but nothing's coming back, alerting him to whether or not his words are working. And so it's almost like in my mind, I went from looking at the program and just focusing on the program, the delivery, the program, the delivery, to finally in my mind looking up and seeing the person in front of me. And believe me, I could not articulate that feeling back then as I am now, the beauty of hindsight. However, I knew something was going on and something was important. And I knew that it had to do with me in the way I was coaching, not what I was coaching. And so fast forward through the, the rest of the eight-week process, we fly to Indianapolis. I am through the roof, excited and nervous in equal parts. We go through the, the early days of the medical and the interviews, so on and so forth. We have this little venue in the bottom of the Omni where we prep the athletes in the few, in the few nights leading up to them actually going over to Lucas Oil Stadium and running, jumping, so on and so forth. And so now I'm watching my athletes on TV because we're not allowed over there because we're not NFL staff. And I've got my computer next to me having the videos that we would have recorded while at Exos, as well as my spreadsheet of all of our times pre and post. And as I watch my guys start to run, I notice something. One, all of them are running faster than when they came in. But that's not a huge feat. I mean, eight weeks after an entire collegiate season, recovery itself is going to allow you to run faster. And, and so they're running fast. And with and, a, yeah, go. a sack of $17 million at the end of the track, I, I would run faster. <laughs> like, Everyone would run yeah, faster. I mean, Absolutely. It, there's not a better <laughs> stage, right? Like this is the moment uh, at that point in their lives. This is the, the fastest moment that they may ever run. Well, we, 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 we always joke. This is the most important interview question you'll answer. <laughs> and so that's the way we'd put it to, to the players. And so I'm watching these guys get after it. And so they're running faster and everyone around me is happy. Like, man, great job. Guys are looking good. Guys are looking ready. And I'm looking at these people like they're crazy. I'm like, what are you on about? 
I'm like, look at this video. And so I'm showing these guys videos of my players running back in Phoenix. Where I'm like, see that? Massive first step. Long body position from head to heel. Faster 10-yard time. See that guy out there? He just tripped out of his stance, back rounded, looks like he's taken a thousand steps a minute and just grunted out a good time. Mm -hmm. That does not look like the same guy on that screen. And so while most certainly there was variation across my players, the general view for me was this. Their luggage had been lost. Something had happened between leaving (laughs) Phoenix and ending up in Indianapolis. And inside that luggage was critical performance. And so let me, let me zoom out now for everyone if we're not getting the metaphor. If you've ever had an, an athlete or a client or a patient come in and you work with them on a Monday and you give them some cues, you give them some drills and chick, chick, light bulb turns on, happy days, high fives and hugs all around, we're feeling good. But then you have that patient come in the next Monday, you're clever enough to know, hey, let's see if this thing actually sticks. So I'm not going to give them any reminders. And all of a sudden, they're doing their get up, their kettlebell swing or whatever the movement is. And you're scratching your head. You're like, man, it looks like they've completely regressed. It's like Will Smith has gone into their house, men in black style, and just erased their memory. And it was one step forward and one step back. You know, in sport, we call that the practice player, the one that tends to do really well during the week, but can't comp it during the competition. And so summarize those examples against my experience. And I'm thinking, wow, the program worked. You, know, you do anything long enough, you lift heavy enough, you run far enough, you're going to improve physically. So the program and the facility and the motivation, as you rightly note, Josh, that got them faster. But there's a reason we have coaches. Coaches exist because we are the craftspeople. We are the individuals that take out the chisel and take the raw marble that we build under the bar and the, the raw steel and slate that we build by doing our sprint reps. And through our cues, through our voice, we chisel that into coordination. We chisel that into technique that optimizes the player's assets, that gets the most out of them. If that did not exist, there would be no reason for coaches. If it was just enough to do the reps and the sets, you would not need a coach. But coaches exist for that reason. And in my mind, what I observed objectively is I had failed them. We had left performance back in Phoenix. And I was like, I have got to find a way to make sure that this never happens again. And so connect that outcome observation with that intuition that hit me early in January. And that amalgamated for me to to recontextualize myself as a teacher, them as a student, and my subject matter as movement. And I said, I've got to get better at teaching movement. Where do I need to go to learn how to do this? And I'm like, wow, the answer is in the garage. And I dusted off my old motor learning textbook. Motor learning as a domain of science is the science of learning and teaching movement. Yet I had spent a small fraction of my time, professionally and academically, ever giving it any consideration. And I believe that's a norm across the movement profession. Yeah. And that's because I don't. Yeah, I just want you to know uh, if there's nothing else that I share from this interview that your book on my bookshelf lives. I literally on purpose put it next to the Schmidt and Lee fifth edition of motor learning. And is it performance or yeah, 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 motor learning and performance. 
because uh, yeah, I figure it's like the Rosetta Stone of that. Like that's the what to do, and your book is how to get a human being to actually do that. Well, you gave me chills, man. I appreciate that. Like that's one of the most important texts for me, and, and I see myself as a translator. I've gone in and spent time with the eight syllable words, got comfortable, cozied up, hugged them, and all the researchers that produce them. And I feel I got to bring them down into those two to four syllable words. Yeah, well, just know that, that every night your book goes to bed next to, you know, Dr. Schmidt and Lee. And, you know, <laughs> that's great. That's and great. It, only through osmosis, hopefully I can learn. So, yeah, uh, well, likewise. And, you know, so ultimately where that gets us is, you know, we oftentimes talk about the coaching craft mm-hmm. as an art. And we talk about having to learn it over time. And, oh, you just got to, you'll figure it out as you go. But for me, that was never enough. And I felt that that attitude is what failed me and fails so many earlier in their, early in their career. And ultimately, what I found is there is a science of coaching. And yeah. once you understand that science, it expands your artistic expression of it. I love it. Yeah, because I think one of the most demotivating phrases ever mentioned in sports or business, I've had this thrown at me a thousand times in businesses, you know, it just takes time. It just takes time. Yeah. And of all the resources we have, time is the one we can never get back. Michael Jordan made a boatload of money when he was with the Bulls. He can never buy time back to get better than he was, you know, like, yep. uh, and, and that, and, and in your, like in your program, you had eight weeks, you couldn't say yeah. like, well, you know what, this guy's going to need nine and a half weeks and that guy's going to need, and this guy's going to peak at four and that guy's going to need 10. It's like, no, 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 two we're running, here's the date we're running at Lucas Oil Stadium, like be there, be square, but we can't get time back. And so every one of our coaching sessions or every one of our rehab sessions or every one of our treatment sessions is an opportunity to break through that shell or whatever and build that connection uh, that, that a lot of times we just, man, I, I, I don't like the... I see it a lot, you know, the coaches and, and I'm going to eliminate the parents that have coached sports because I think that they're in a, in a different, uh, but anybody that's labeled themselves as a professional coach, you know, when it's, it, it just sounds like they're counting to 10 or they're running the same drill or they're giving their person the same swing, no matter what's happening. I'm like, man, this drives me nuts. It's hard to watch. So yeah, for I sure. got a couple questions for, sure. for you. I, I want to ask Let's about the story. So you knew in Indianapolis that basically you left money on the table in your personal opinion, right? You're looking at your guys going, it's awesome. You went first round, you got a big bonus, your agent's happy, but you're going, they, they didn't get a hundred percent. They got a 97 or 96 or something like, and their time yeah. was awesome. But, but you know that there could have been more, right? Absolutely. What yeah. was the flight? What was the time like between that realization and walking up, face-to-face, I mean, you're a human being, right? Face-to-face with, say, Verstegen or, or I don't know who the other um, true mentors were. Were you embarrassed? Were you frustrated? And what did, what did you say to them? Like, how did you bridge that gap going? Because in your story, what I'm hearing is like, I almost have to go to my, like, you'd almost have to go to your mentor and be like, look, I, I know I, I screwed up. And, and they're going to be like, no, man, you did a great job. Oh, and, and, and there's that ache in your gut, right? Like, you're like, no, like, don't give me that BS. I want to be excellent. And, and I know that's not, we didn't get everything we could out of them. Yeah. No, Josh, you, you nailed it. I mean, you absolutely nailed it. People were so 
positive. Like, man, this is your first year doing it. And your results were absolutely on par with what we expect out of this program. And ultimately what I saw was that's because that's the, the program worked. I was the variable that didn't work, but no one else saw it that way. And Josh, that's part of the problem is that no coaches, while we implicitly know we're a variable, oftentimes when we reflect on a session, we're reflecting on, well, did that drill work? Did that organization work? And when we talk about the interpersonal side of things, you know, so often, oh, that player isn't getting it or that player isn't understanding. And I think we're finally now shifting into this idea that, that we're not their boss, we're a business partner. And that, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, are they struggling to understand or are you struggling to teach? So I think we're moving closer to that. But even if you have that realization that communication and connection matters, knowing how to actually change it systematically is, is a whole nother thing, right? And so for me, I was explaining to him, I know that I'm a variable. Well, yeah, Nick, of course you're very, but I know that how I coach has massive impact on these results. I just don't know how to change it. And I would hear things like, well, it takes time and you're finding your coaching voice, but you, you articulated Josh perfectly, the ache in the stomach. I was, there was probably an 18 month period after that where I was pacing exos, like literally pacing the place as I was reading more and more, and I would just have these impromptu conversations, mostly with my buddy, Dennis Logan, who ran the strength side of things. And we just started to, to unpack this together around, man, our language matters and how we speak. And inevitably, not only did we start to change our language, both he and I, but we would even start to look at how language could supersede and guide entire weeks. So we started putting mental themes on the week and how we could utilize that to guide the energy flow that we brought to the session and the athlete brought to the session and what was expected of them to make sure that psychologically we periodize their journey. So not to mentally exhaust and peak them too early. And so all these things started to come to the fore. And the reality is this was my pursuit. No one else was challenging me. No one else saw this as, as a dominant area of growth. It was something that I reflected on and we haven't gotten into it. And I talk about this story later on in the book, there, there was an experience when I was 19 that, let's say, was the seedling for me to know to look back at communication and language at some point in my career. And that's because I was working with this guy as a personal trainer, and he was like the, the wizard of words. He would speak with such precision and purpose. People would just lean in and actually primarily worked with bodybuilders. Now, I, I've, I've never really worked with bodybuilders and, and haven't since, but he did. And one thing I noticed about bodybuilders is their ability to, or need to focus to get such a specific maximized pump for whatever movement they're doing was critical. And there are certain parts of the body that are difficult to activate. And so this guy could just slice and dice people's minds to find the right phrase, the right visual to put an upload that would get them to get the, the low lat or right. the posterior delt. And Hold on, real quick. Hold on, yeah. real quick. I want to uh, I want to go into something because there's a there's a gap here that I'm like, you're getting back, you're pacing the halls of AP, and when did you when did you come to the realization in your investigation that it was a language problem versus power output, 
exercises. I mean, most strength and conditioning coaches I know uh, would go back and review the program and say like, what do we focus on? And do we get a result from that? Right. They'd look, they, I, I picture them holding an Excel spreadsheet printed out with the sets and reps and you know, what exercise we had to do and what phase we we're in and all that stuff. But that doesn't ever talk about the language, right? Like I no, mean, your, no. your sprint program doesn't talk about the language. Like if, if the thing that I love about, about you, Nick is like when you're talking about a coach, like if language didn't matter, everyone, every YouTube video would be wildly effective at teaching you anything you want to do. If you language need coaches, that's right. Yeah. You could order any online program from pitch, you know, velocity training for young pitchers to uh, weight loss programs for 40 year old marathon runners. It would, it would all work. And yet it doesn't Absolutely. like it doesn't. And, and we're not living in a world where there's a lack of programs or a lack of information or a lack of, I mean, if you've got a credit card and a laptop, baby, you can order <laughs> 12 weeks to anything, you know? Yeah, for sure. And it for doesn't sure. work. So how did you come to that realization that it well, was that, a language yeah, that, problem? That's it though. That, that's why well, I'm glad. I love these questions, by the way. That's why I'm telling you about this guy back in college because he by pure chance, I watched this guy for weeks, months, to be honest with you. And I asked that exact same question, like, what is this dude doing differently that is allowing his clients to be so engaged and get obviously such good results? I mean, they, they were winning their amateur bodybuilding competitions. And I'm like, the program's no different. He benches on Monday. He does bicep curls on Friday. Like, he's doing all the same exercises as everyone else, but this guy is completely different. And ultimately I had a day where it dawned on me, kind of like that day it dawned on me back in 2009. Like the way this dude communicates is different. That is it. And I literally, Josh, went to the other mentor that I told you about earlier in the back room of the rec center who knew Mark Verstegen. I said, listen, what this guy is doing is game changing, but I don't even think he knows he's doing it. Hmm. His cues, his cues, his language are absolutely his secret weapon. And there's nothing. And at the time, I was like 19 or 20. At the time, I'm like, there's nothing out there on this, like this. One, and I kid you not, my exact quote, one day I will write the book called The Form Within. And The Form Within is not the title of this book, but this is the book. The language of coaching is The Form Within, the book that I said I'd write when I was 19. And so 2009, fast forward to the story I just shared, that experience I had late, you know, late January, and then obviously the realization at the NFL Combine, and then flying back as I'm pacing the halls, it was, it was right there in front of me. How I communicate, how often I communicate, how I connect, how I use my verbal chisel to take their physical marble and put it into a form that allows them to optimize technique, coordination, and execution with these physical assets that they have available to them. That is the change. And I knew that, and I knew that because not only had I had that experience, but the program, the facility, the content, right? The 12 weeks to anything that you talked about earlier, that was all there on a silver platter. It had been tested dang near a decade at that point. I'm like, this is not the problem. I'm the opportunity though. And that's when I went to work. And so for me, it was a motor learning textbook. We, uh, we had our first child that year. We flew to Hawaii and I literally, I have the textbook sitting right next to me, read the whole thing, cover to cover. And I'm like, this is the answer. 
There are, in certain cases, over three decades of research around how often to give feedback, when you cue, what to say, when you design drills, what are the features of drills that promote learning, what are the myths of learning, whereby I can do this thing right now to get better results immediately, but actually it's not going to help them own it on the weekend. And so as I'm getting into this, I'm like, boom, there's the answer. Do it. Let me jump in right there. And I, I'm sorry to cut you off, Nick. You, I love it. No, no. Let's, no. What I should do is just ask you a question and then, you know, head out, grab some breakfast and coffee. And well, you you're going to lay out 17. <laughs> you know, I've only asked like three questions over the course of three hours, but it, I know my listeners are getting a lot out of this. Um, I just need to fill in these gaps for my own, like, uh, mental sanctity. When you're reading that motor learning textbook, and if anybody hasn't picked up that, uh, the, motor learning and performance or what's the other one motor learning and motor control and learning um uh, the black one and the white one are the two i have but uh i think motor learning and performance is amazing when you pick that up and and here you are you you maybe have never been more motivated as a coach in your life right to solve a problem and that's true and you're getting down to it and you're like okay i know the source this book this textbook is a source and you look through um and you know like that book is just, there's so, I mean, you can pull out a chapter and make 17 coaching courses out of it, right? Like Bingo. Uh, yeah. block versus random and, and performance. It's just unbelievable. And I highly recommend it for anybody uh, to get that book. But um, what was the first insight where you, I'm picturing you on a plane, you read a line or you read the research and you look over at the citation and it turns out that was, we've known that since 1963. <laughs> I'm kind of telling you my story of reading the book. Yeah. yeah, yeah since 1963, you aggressively shut the cover of the book. You lean your head back against the headrest like, oh shit. Like, yes. like I'm such a rookie. Um, what were like some of the first things you realized that you were doing that, that could have some dramatic improvement? I mean, that were just blatantly, was it, the way you were cueing or like you said, you were coaching before, during and after cues or um, exercises. What was the, those first like emotional hits that you took? The, the, the first one, and it's the one that I try to smack people in the face with in my book as well was on attention. It's like, we all know that we can only pay attention to one thing at a time. And we, we have a sense we can pay attention to more, because we can flip our attention very quickly. But you know, books like The Myth of Multitasking and the many that have since followed from a business context, like it is of no mystery here. Attention is a limited capacity resource. Yet here I am, like so many coaches, providing a dissertation before my players move, right? I'm explaining what they need to think about, how they need to think about it. Here's the five steps to building acceleration. And even if everything I was saying was correct, it didn't change the fact that there was no possible way they could consider all of those ideas in the fraction of a second that is the three-point start. And so the very first thing I did was stream down to early on two to three cues to inevitably I now live and die by the one big thing. I want to make sure that there's one big idea, one major focus point that drives intention, the the mental address, right, to the GPS, so to speak. And that one big thing respects the neurological truth 
that attention is limited. And thus, let me give you one guiding light, knowing that still some of my attention goes into performing the physical act itself. And so that was the first massive one that I think makes the biggest difference to coaches if they do nothing else is chiseling down their cues to the one cue, the one brick, so to speak, at a time. So as you are leading a program at AP, you're learning about this language. I, I, I'm under the understanding you guys did uh, formal coaching meetings and, and at least once a week and informal coaching meetings throughout the day, right? Um, yes. Did you realize that other people were feeling this pressure or when, as soon as you verbalized this, were others like, oh my God, like I, I thanks, I realized that that was an issue? Um. Not, interesting not question. Yeah. No, it's an interesting question. I, I, sh- I shared it widely because, you know, one nice thing about my role at Exos is when I wasn't doing the NFL Combine thing, I was doing a lot of coach education from a mentorship perspective. Okay. And so by the very nature of running these five-day mentorship courses, as I was consuming new research and new information, I used that as, as a natural test bed to put information out there. And what I find is people were, were excited by the idea that queuing matters. I think it was very intuitive to them, but I don't think anyone had had the same realization with the gravity that I had. And I felt that I needed to be the sun. I needed to be the gravitational pull to alert the world like this is a massive black hole within our thinking, within our process. We commit 99% of our time to the content of what and barely a percentage point to the how, yet inverse that on how often we are coaching versus programming. And it just made no sense to me. So early on, no one resisted, but did I see people take this information on with the vigor, vitality, and fight that I did? No. And that simply just told me that people thought it was important, but they had not yet had the experiences to reveal the magnitude of that importance. And thus, that's why every year that I moved forward from 2009, where I didn't see the book come out, I didn't see the courses come out, I didn't see more presentations on the topic, that only invigorated me to further my study and my depth to prepare myself to prepare myself to produce something with such a gravitational pull that it cannot be ignored. And that's the book you have on your shelf. All right. I'm ready to go run through a wall right now. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I love the story and I could sit, I mean, if I, if, if, uh, if we weren't under a time, uh, time crunch here, I would totally sit and I'd love to hear this over multiple beers. But what I really want to do is for those people who listen this far in and they're, they're sold on this idea. They, they know it's the deal. Let's talk about the how. And yep. I want to just get them some juicy details here enough where they're like, this is a task I want to take on. Because yes. my experience, for example, I'm sure you're familiar with the SFMA. My experience with the SFMA yep. is I almost got out of chiropractor because I was pissed. I couldn't help about 30% of my clients. And in fact, probably 10% of them I was making worse. And when I discovered an accurate diagnostic system that solved that problem, I wanted to be, I wanted to make Paul Revere look like a mute who didn't travel. You know, like I wanted to (laughs) run around and tell every healthcare practitioner, like, we can solve this. It's so simple. You know, like, 
So totally, totally. Luckily, I teach them, but it was because, and I say this to the students I teach, like there are students who are learning this before they graduate chiropractic college. And I, I, I feel bad in some way that they don't have the emotional load of screwing up enough patients or struggling with patients to have that emotional drive to help them diagnose more accurately. And instead, mm. you know, they're coming out with this easy task. And as we know, success is a horrible instructor. It's, you know, it's, mm. it's not a great coach. So anyways, uh, I, I want to help fly your flag that language is, it, it's, and I would say it's like no one, ironically, no one talks about language. Hey, I want to tell you all about Membrant. Membrant with a D in there, like Rembrandt. Membrant is an app platform. Now, this company is the one who built the Clinic Gym Hybrid app. And if you uh, purchase our accelerator program, you will get firsthand knowledge of what they do. But I think this is the next evolution in clinics who want to really give their patients better care, better service while making it more convenient. So what Membrand can do is help you design a custom app for your company. This isn't just like rebranding somebody else's. This is your app that lives on the app store and your patients can download. Now, what's the power of an app? Well, let's just say, for example, that you have a certain protocol that you want your low back pain patients to go for. So let's say you include the McGill Big Three, a little talk about repetitive motions and finding your kind of McKenzie protocol of reducing your your pain through those repetitive asymptomatic movements. Well, you could tag the patients, meaning that you kind of put them on a list that says you want them to have access to the low back protocols, right? And then you could have another program of videos, articles, exercise descriptions, all that, that only go out to your patients with shoulder pain, right? Or ones that go out to patients with plantar fasciitis. If you can build that program, then what Membrane can help you do is make sure that only the patients that really need the plantar fasciitis exercises get that delivered to their phone. That thing that they're staring at, some estimates say as many as 500 times a day, all right? So check out Membrant.com, Membrant.com, or send me an email. I can hook you up with those guys, and they can put together a fantastic program. I think it's really the future, and it's one more way that technology will help you make more money while providing better care and a better business model. So check out Membrant.com. Can we start with maybe two common mistakes people make. And I'm thinking for my group, maybe it's in rehab or maybe it's in exercise, right? Two common mistakes that are made and solutions that they can kind of try the day after they listen to this to see if we can maybe make a change and and see how different those results are. Yeah, for sure. So we'll just get to the, the main thesis of the book, which is the main strategy, which is the main solution. And so you asked for two. I've already given one, and I'm going I'm to put a pressure point on it again. Mm-hmm. And that is when you get done with this podcast, if you've listened this far, and you go into your next session, whether it's remote or face-to-face, wherever you are yeah. in the world, I want you just to challenge yourself to do that, that one thing, and that is to identify the one thing. And despite your intuition saying, I'm a teacher, I need to give, 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 that's fine. You can explain, you can instruct, go for your life there. But after you've given your dissertation, just try this out for me. Take a deep breath and say the following words. Now, to do that, I want you to focus on. And after the focus on dot, 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 make sure that's one big thing. It's one focus point. It's one intention that will guide that movement for that rep and that set. And if it seems to work, 
repeat it. And over time, if it seems to lose its potency, refresh it. Come up with a slightly different way to phrase the exact same thing. You know, and finally, if it's damaging, or at the very least doesn't appear to be making the change you want, you retire that cue for that person and you move on. But we summarize that as the one big thing. Okay, so that's point number one. Nothing else I'm going to say matters if you don't do that. Because the set, you could be a cueing wizard, but if you're given five cues at a time, you're the architect of your own demise and the architect of theirs. Okay, so that's point number one. Point number two is once you know it's one big thing, the question is what should that one big thing be? Now, I'm going to make a broad, make a broad assumption here that, as you said, you know, Josh, you talked about the SFMA. Talking about how you coach is dependent on a truth. And that truth is that you know what to coach, okay? So I'm going to make the assumption that you are good at identifying the problem over the symptom, the signal over the noise. And in fairness, I talk about my approach to doing this in chapter one of the book, just for the record. And so we were assuming that you know what to coach. You're going to put that in one big thing, one cue. Now the question is, how should we wrap that cue? What language should we pull from what I like to call our language locker. And it appears that the language we use to teach movement lives on a continuum of internal language, which you probably can guess what that reference is, to external language. But let's give some examples here. And I'm just going to use the bench press to keep it really, really simple. And so internal language is anything that references joint motion or muscle activation. So in a bench press, if I was say, extend your elbows, keep your wrists neutral, squeeze your pecs, right? bring your hands together, on and on and on. These are all internal cues, process-oriented, that talk about one part of the motion, even though we're performing a complex motion with multiple parts. It's micro rather than macro, if you would. We can then zoom out, and I like the word zoom here, zoom out of the body into what we call an external cue. And now I can start talking about driving the barbell towards the ceiling, keeping inward pressure on the bar, pushing the bar away from the bench. I could even put a visual in the mind. Imagine there is a wall in front of the plates. I want you to drive straight up that wall if I'm trying to promote bar path. And in all of those instances, the language is in the environment and in the outcome I'm trying to achieve. And thus it focuses on the macro allowing the micro or the joints and muscles, if you would, to self-organize to achieve the goal. Now, when you ask most coaches, strength coaches, sport coaches, therapists, internal versus external, once we've given those definitions, do you use both of them? Everyone raises their hand. Okay. Do you think one is better than the other? You kind of you see that the faces scrunch up. I don't know. Do you think it depends? Everyone's hands go up. Okay, beautiful. That's kind of the pulse check for most people once you give those definitions and you ask them which one is better, if at all, or do they both matter? And here's what we now know. Here's the punchline and thus the strategy. And that is there are over 170 papers, believe it or not, based on science that is very old, but they're really kicked in the gear with Dr. Gabrielle Wolf, who is the queen of cues, if you would back in 1998. So 170 plus papers since 1998 that have explicitly looked at if I take a movement and I find an internal cue and an equivalent external cue and I coach individuals with those, 
does one category of Q work better than the other? Or are they both beneficial? And it depends. And if so, what does it depend on? But here's the crazy thing. I would say easily 96 to 97% of those studies consistently show that when compared, external cues allow not only for better performance in the immediate moments of hearing the cue and applying it, but here's the important thing, that those that train with external cues learn better, which means if we bring them back a few days later and reassess their balance, they're going to see greater and more stable improvements in balance than the equivalent cohort that trained using the internal cues, right? And so in an example of a balance study would be an external cue would be pieces of tape on the balance board. Keep the pieces of tape, and these pieces of tape, excuse me, are in front of the feet. Keep the pieces of tape parallel versus keeping your feet parallel. Just as an example, the simple difference of, of an inch of focus, feet versus the tape in front of the feet, is strong enough as a, as a large enough gravitational pull to improve performance in the moment and in the future. Now, you're probably thinking, well, why? Very simply put, when we coach movement, movement is complex. It involves complex actions of multiple joints, right? And the sequence of neural activity in bringing that symphony of movement together, further complexity on top. And so for us to think that we can summarize complex movement by a singular joint, a singular instrument in the broader symphony is, in my opinion, a fool's agenda. And so it's not that we can't use internal cues. People have for a very long period of time, rightly or wrongly. So they can work. I think they work at times despite themselves, not because of them. If I give you the cue, think about extending your elbow. Ultimately, if you're performing a bench press, your mind is going to have to go to the bar at some point. Versus if I put the focus on the bar from the get-go, but put it in a very visually, let's say, interesting way, drive the bar through the ceiling. Now I've simply clarified a goal for the body to achieve. And the sum punchline here is this, that we can use internal language when we're explaining a movement, when we're instructing a movement, when we're doing video analysis, when we're explaining an error or an injury, no problem. And in my book, I talk about that as your descriptions and your debriefs. There's a home for internal language. It lives on the neighborhood right? It lives on the block of coaching communication, but it doesn't live in the house that we call the cue. And the cue is the last idea that enters the client or the patient's mind before they move. It is what guides the movement while they move. That cue needs to be protected for external language or analogies that put visuals in the mind. And we could unpack this as you yeah. know all too well, Josh, but yeah, that's the major piece. There's a huge piece of it that I'm hoping that all my rehab homies here listening uh, capture here. And, and again, Nick, you are, your, your amount of information is absolutely incredible. And I'm sure that people may, may want to go back and listen to this a few times because just that last three minutes was, could, could change a career. I mean, it literally could change. It changed mine. Yeah. Uh, And so I want to go back to something here. The other thing that I, when I was reading your book, what, what I, the, the, the first sub layer that hit me, and I'm sure as I read it again and again, there'll be, you know, 11,000 sub layers here to, to unpack. But the huge advantage we have in 
external versus internal cues in the rehab sense. So if this is somebody who has pain and let's, let's say that they had chronic pain for five years, they've had low back pain for five years and they're coming to you to solve that problem. When we keep the cues external, for example, um, trying to think of, of, I want to use a hip hinge is a, is a typical thing that a lot of people teach chronic people with chronic low back pain, right? Mm-hmm. Learning how mm-hmm. to hip hinge. And so your cue in the book, if I remember right, is uh, push your hips back like you're closing the door on a car. Yep. Is that right? All right. Yep. I think I, I, think I have it like, you know, imagine you have groceries in your hands and you need to close the door of your car and it's a visual of a person bumping the car door. Yep. Right. Their butt. So, so we, we take that. If we were to use an internal cue about, you know, keep your abdominal pressure tight, uh, don't flex your back, blah, blah, blah. One of the threats, not even having to do with how well they perform the act is if they cannot do what you're saying to do in the queue, in somebody with chronic pain, one of the things you have to constantly battle is their feeling of fragility or inability. Mm. Thinking, I can't do that. Therefore, I, as the patient, must be wrong. I must have a problem. Whereas an external cue eliminates that threat, right? There's no, you know, bump the car door has nothing to do with their emotional state, has nothing to do with their uh, feeling of self-worth or resiliency or strength. It's totally outside of that. And it almost gamifies it instead of creating this possible threat. Because I've had those people that come to me and, you know, I'm the third, fourth, fifth person they're seeing. And they're like, I, you know, I tried uh, pain management, but I guess my body just doesn't react to those drugs. And I tried physical therapy. I just wasn't strong enough. And I I did chiropractic, but I, I, you know, he said my adjustments wouldn't hold. And I'm like thinking the person is trying to convince me that they're the problem. And I'm thinking, you're not the problem. Like, Mm. you know, all those things work. They've just been improperly applied. Like, I mean, pain management, for example, we know if you put prednisone on tissue, it, it reduces inflammation. It's just as, as close to physics as we can get. It's just a chemistry experiment. And, uh, and so that external cue helps drive that, that behavior, helps drive that feeling, helps drive that intent that the, the person, the, the biological form is not problematic, which I think is a uh, huge thing to get over with these uh, with that type of patient. Well, Josh, you just put your own uh, density of brilliant insight into that two to three minute riff. So I think there's going to be a lot of rewinding on this <laughs> podcast. So let's get into a couple of critical things you just said. Um, and there's, there's, I like how you use the word layers because I usually term layers as well when I talk about insight. So I, I like them steal that word. The first one is this. When we are moving, like, let me tell a quick story here just to, to illustrate and reinforce what you're saying and the value of an external cue. I think people will like this. And I, I, I do tell the story in the book. And so imagine that you're, you're moving house, right? You're moving down the block to a bigger house, whatever. And you have some boxes laid out and all these boxes are labeled. And one of them says pots and pans. And one of them says bed, bed linens. But you didn't realize this, but your partner comes in and in the bed linens box, packed up all the pots and pans and in the pots and pans box, all the linens. And so just think about this in your mind. You're walking up to that pots and pans box. You've already started to establish a goal in your mind. And that goal is this thing is going to be heavy. I need to brace. 
I need to get low. Now, you're not cognitively going through those step by step, but your emotional preparation says, this is what I'm about to deal with, okay? And so just put yourself in that mind frame, and I think you'll find that what I'm suggesting is quite intuitive. So that goal is loaded up for your motor system to achieve. Now you bend down, grab that box, and pop, right? You pop straight on up unexpectedly. And how many patients have you had come in to your clinics who busted their back picking up the remote control or something light? It almost wasn't heavy enough to facilitate the proper activation. And so what does this illustrate? It illustrates that our motor control, the way we literally organize the complexities of our body is built around a given outcome. And that outcome is what the body uses to prepare the movement to achieve it. And when that outcome that was expected and the motor strategy misalign, that's the fancy word in motor control we call error. And so why am I sharing this? Ultimately, our movement, whether or not we want to believe this, is always organized in terms of an outcome. Always. So tell me where in our mind is a multi-joint movement ever broken down and reduced to just one joint becoming the outcome? Never. Never. And so to your very point, one, we're not promoting a positive, one, we're not promoting outcome. And two, we're promoting a cue that is less likely to achieve the outcome. Three, if the cue relates to the injured joint, you're right, we're possibly increasing and highlighting ego. And what I mean by ego is self-awareness, possibly self-doubt. And especially if they have concerns around fragility, being able to decouple them from that injury and allowing that injury to play nice with its surrounding joints and the rest of its motor friends, so to speak, becomes even more important from a return perspective. And so utilizing that external cue is not only best practice from a motor control, motor learning perspective, and this is not my area of expertise, Josh, but psychologically, I think what you say makes a lot of sense. We, before this call, we talked about this idea of metaphorical therapy and how actually taking someone who has a lot of negativity associated with body, body movement, actually asking them to get tall like a tree, explode off the line like a jet taking off. This metaphorical or analogical language can give them a mental reprieve, as if to step into virtual reality and move as if. And what's cool is that jet's not broken. That tree's not broken. And so they can get into that form and try out a version of themselves that's not broken. And then when they come back to reality, like, wow, I was able to move pain-free. And assuming nothing you're doing is contraindicated, that psychological leap can unlock someone. And I'll be honest with you, Josh, this is the biggest area that I want to start to look more into and work with therapists like yourself and others to take my knowledge around cueing and language and layer it with the pain sciences because the evidence is massive and the possibilities to improve lives further still. Yeah, that... uh. I love it because inherently, you know, when you talk jet, it's, <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, what would the opposite of that be? Like, you know, you're, you're driving like a jet taking off in, in that saying, just for those listening, it's so much different than imagine you're running as fast as you can. Cause you're holding onto a hang glider and you're trying to get it to lift off. <laughs> it just doesn't have the, the punch that the, the jet does. Right. Like, yeah, well, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. 
flight. I mean, they're both going for the, the tail end of flight. They're going to gain that height, but it's just that difference in language. You can imagine which one is motivating, which one is powerful, which one takes that person. And, and because when they're able to do that, perhaps they identify as the jet, perhaps they identify as the tree trunk, you know, and, and, uh, well, well, that's it. That's it. And, and here's the, here's the thing about when what we're now we're getting into analogies. So, I mean, if, if tip number one is one big thing and tip number two is external cues, well, tip number three, and for me is the analogy and the analogy is, is the super cue, you know, it's the super fruit of, of language. And the reason it is, is because it taps our visual cortex and our visual cortex is just massive. We are visual creatures and it allows you to take the infinite level and it feels like experiences of a person that they're familiar with and use those to teach the unfamiliar. Now, many coaches and therapists alike get, can get uncomfortable at times with using analogies. They're like, well, well, don't I need to explain exactly how the movement should be performed? I say, well, if that were true, then how would a child learn to walk and run? How would a child learn to ride a bike? How would a child learn to skip rope if we had to articulate the steps to perform a movement? I know that intuitively when you read a biomechanical textbook or kinesiology textbook, we teach you movement insofar as the details of what the movement is. But that's why as an industry, we failed movement professionals because it's been a failure of omission. We omitted, we forgot to tell you, no, that biomechanical book is not the narrative you use to coach people. Ultimately, we need to use language that connects and conceals. Ah, what do I mean by that? Connects with the client and the patient, but conceals the detail in a relatable cue that if they focus on the cue as said, will allow the detail to be born. So let's use the one that you just said there, Josh, on the jet taking off. That sounds like simpleton language to a lot of people. Like that's way too simple. How can that actually help the athlete? Well, check it out. If I'm teaching someone to accelerate, from a rhythm and rise perspective, what do I want to see? I want to see them go from low to high. What does a jet do by its very nature? It goes from low to high. I want them from a physical body perspective to do that with a long position from head to heel, maximizing push. Well, what is a jet? It's, it's a long, lean cylinder, very similar side on view to the human body. Uh, what about the energetics, the force of the motion? Well, I want it to be as explosive as possible, adding speed as we go. Again, progressively from low to high, a jet adds speed with high force, high violence as it goes. And so I could keep riffing on this, but all of a sudden we see, man, that analogy is like a Trojan horse for biomechanical detail. It hides all that freaking information in a brief relatable phrase that can be easily applied. We have got to get away from thinking that it is the thinking that gets the change in the motion. No. The thinking is the processing of the words explode off the line like a jet taking off. Those can be downloaded into the feeling and the embodiment of a jet, which very much so is tapping more into our emotional kinesthetic areas of the body. That's still information, but it's not the textbook information. And so we as coaches need to start thinking about the, almost like the matrix. How do I give a very simple phrase that downloads the biomechanical detail, but hides it from the cognitive mind that is subject to paralysis by analysis? 
We could go deep here, but that's the beauty of external cues and analogies. It gives the information to the cognitive brain that it desires to establish the goal while giving the ones and zeros, the biomechanical detail to the implicit brain, the non-cognitive brain needed to bring that outcome to life. You know, you, you, uh, I, I was just making the realization that there is a, there is a, a uh, profession called copywriting. And what they try and do is, is change the language to create action through the written word. Yes. And it's yes. funny because their, their language selection, I mean, copywriter, a good copywriter will get paid kajillion dollars, you know, per, per word. I mean, I've seen them charge uh, like $15 per word. Wow. Not saying per page, per word. Because they can create action through that. And that's when you're reading it. And yet here we are at a place where we want that person to move And sometimes, you know, golf swing is a third of a second in a, in a baseball pitch is about half a second, right? All these, uh, I think actually is a 0.98 seconds. Anyway, so there's all these motions where we're trying to create a change that occurs there. And yet nobody has come forward and said like this, you know, in, in sales and marketing, they've, they've identified copywriters as a needed thing. And, and here you are saying, we need this for this action that's going to happen in, in the blink of an eye. So not over the course of reading a page, but in the blink of an eye. And they have to shed, what I'm hearing from you say, like they have to shed all the weight of thinking they, because there's no time for that. There's no, the load of that is going to inherently slow down the process we need to happen as fast as possible. Yeah, no, 100%. And let's just, let's give the listeners an example of this, okay? So uh, it's a thought experiment. Again, I want you to imagine you're, you're standing on a line, two-point or a three-point stance, and you're sprinting by yourself. So there's no motivational factors of racing anyone else. You're not chasing, you're not being chased. It's just you. And you need to summon, you need to summon the mental strength to run 10 yards as fast as you can. Okay. And so think of a cue like the gasoline you put in the car. I'm going to give you three different versions of gasoline here. And people can think, which one would you want? In one case, I could tell you, I need you to explode through your hips. Explode through your hips. That's gasoline number one. Okay. Gasoline number two is I want you to explode off the line. Explode off the line. And that's gasoline number two. Gasoline number three, we're in Phoenix, Arizona. Context matters here. I'm going to put a venomous rattlesnake two feet behind your back foot. This thing is pissed off, reared up, rattling fangs out, dripping. I need you to beat the bite. Beat the freaking bite. Gasoline number three. Listener, just, just ask yourself, which one... If you, were, if you were being timed for a competition, which gasoline would you want to put in your mind? And I'm going to say you're probably going with number two or number three. Well, number three I for would, me is, is rocket fuel, baby. It's a supercharged <laughs> gasoline with a match for those, embedded yeah, yeah. in it. <laughs> yeah, for those of us that do not like snakes, and I'm one of them, that one is, is rocket power for me as well. And so all I'm trying to illustrate here is the power of story and how much emotional Again, I keep using this word, but emotional gravity, we can bring into it. And we can't forget that we're not trying to improve our athlete, our patients, clients' knowledge of the movement. 
We're trying to improve their ability to perform the movement. Those are not the same thing. Because if, if, it, if all it was was the knowledge of the movement, coaches would be the best movers. Ooh, that, uh, that's a great line there, Nick. That one stings a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. I think I'm a pretty good mover though, Josh. Yeah. No, but I'm, you know, it's, it's like when you, I don't know if you've worked with a lot of biomechanists or anybody really good with 3D motion capture, the people who are not great at it oftentimes will talk about degrees of a single joint. Let's say, uh, I remember hearing a guy talk about the amount of great toe extension needed at the, uh, at the terminal point of push-off in a pitch. Yeah. And yeah. my mind immediately goes to good luck. Like that's a distraction. I mean, in my personal opinion is like, that's a distraction because there's no way to affect that in isolation. Right. And if he's thinking about that, I, I can't imagine that he's delivering the best pitch of his life. Um, yeah. But the best, the best I've seen with it, uh, do you know, Dr. Greg Rose? I mean, he's, Oh yes. Oh yeah. He's amazing at analogies and, and he is talking to athletes and, you know, he talks about it in, context, you know, um, you know, how would it get there or why does it occur? And it's, it's, you know, leaping or driving off or reaching out. And now I'm like, Oh, that, that's what that athlete can, you know, that's that one thing the athlete can think of. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Well, Nick, we're way over time. This has been <laughs> so much, so good. Uh, if it's all right with you, man, I would love to do this again in, in a few weeks or, or so. I know you're busy on your book tour, uh, your virtual <laughs> my virtual book tour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if, you know, if, if ever we can do this again, I would love to throw out the name of the book so people can find it and, and tell them where to get it. And uh, let's start there. Cause this has been amazing. Uh, yeah, no, I, well, listen, I, I love, I love your line of questioning and kind of the stream of consciousness interview style here. You know, you don't always get that. So I think that's fantastic. Um, but the book is the language of coaching the art and science of teaching movement. And your last name. So everybody knows. Nick Winkleman. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, Nick, it sounds like you've got some, uh, some coaching clients to attend to. Yeah, I do. I do. It's not, it's not in this day and age during this time of year, or this time of year during this situation, it's not a good podcast or webinar. If you don't hear my son run in the background at some point. Right. <laughs> Well, I think Zoom has a requirement. You either have to have a kid crying and screaming or a dog yeah. barking in the background or it's not actually a conference. So, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Josh, man, seriously, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. This was great. Well, thank you. And behalf, uh, on behalf of Nick Winkleman, this is Dr. Josh Saito saying, go out there, change your language because that will help you maximize your license and live the life you dream of. Thanks, Nick. Cool. Thanks, brother. Thanks a lot for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're looking for more information about me, about us, about our programs, then just head to clinicgymhybrid.com. Again, that's clinicgymhybrid.com. You can check us out there. We've got our accelerator program and a few other programs that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible and making more money while providing excellent active therapy to your patients.